In today's episode, I speak to Tess Cossett, the co-founder and CEO of Bia Fertility, a company making fertility care more convenient and affordable. The company is leveraging a method called intracervical insemination, or ICI, here I go with my medical knowledge, which has proven to actually have a 50% success rate at only a tenth of the cost of IVF. So we'll talk about how that method works. And it's really great to have you on the show, Tess. Thanks for coming. It's so great to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So I want to start with your entrepreneurial journey briefly to get people a bit of background on you. Like what's been your journey into actually co-founding Beer Fertility and your, why are you doing this? <laughs> Great question. Well, I always sort of preface this story by saying it's really not the most exciting co-founding story. But then I think about it and I think every co-founding story or founding story is exciting in its own right. Bea is three years old now. And really, it's born of an idea to take something that we believe should really be a fundamental human right, which is access to the care you need to start your family. And today, that right doesn't really exist, not for everybody. And Bea was born of a shared passion to fix that, to make that better. You know, I'm not a technical founder. I'm not a scientist. I'm actually a marketer. So I used to run an ad agency. My background is very much on the commercial side. And I met an embryologist about three years ago now. And he sort of had this idea. He had this vision and this passion. And I thought, God, you know what? There's really something here. And at the time, I was working in women's health. And I thought, this is where I want to be. This is the space I want to be in. This business makes so much sense. And so I've, you know, I've never looked back. There have been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. But Bea sort of was founded three years ago by the two of us. Amazing. We'll talk about the ups and the downs later on in the episode and some lessons <laughs> learned there. But let's talk about this problem of fertility or infertility and yeah. Who actually has this problem? Because I know you're also very consciously, you know, addressing quite a broad spectrum of people that are dealing with fertility. So give us a bit of an idea of how big this problem is and how it's being solved yeah. right now. Yeah, it's a pretty big problem. So that's always the one thing when I'm, I get so frustrated when I'm fundraising and I'm told that we're niche or the market's small or it's a women's health issue. None of these things are right. You know, fertility is not a women's health issue. And when we make it that, we take away the responsibility from men for their fertility. So I think it's so important to be so upfront about that. This is a human health issue and it impacts so many of us. Today, it's one in six. You know, So in every audience that I ever speak to, I look around the room and I can count the number of people who are dealing with infertility statistically. Just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean that we don't have this problem. If you look at the data on human fertility more broadly, there are some concerning trends. You know, sperm counts have declined by about 50% since the 70s. The diagnoses of endometriosis, PCOS, all of these sort of hormonal-related conditions are at an all-time high in women. Testosterone is down. And all of these things are adding up to really one thing, which is it is only going to get harder and harder to start our families. So the problem of infertility, really what we see, the trends that we see in the data, in the science at Bayer, is that this is really just beginning. We're really at the beginning of what's going to become a pretty significant problem. Got it. So how do existing solutions work? Obviously, a lot of people would have heard of IVF, and that's probably where my knowledge ends. Yeah. But you know, what are kind of the existing solutions out there and how do they work? 
Yeah. So IVF is obviously the most common fertility treatment, but it's also not the most popular globally. Actually, the most popular fertility treatment globally is IUI, intrauterine insemination. Happens in a clinic, happens under sedation, still an invasive medical procedure. But rather than egg and sperm cell meeting in a petri dish as they do in IVF, uh, a semen sample is washed, washed, processed in a lab, and then injected directly into the uterus where fertilization happens in the uterus, in the fallopian tube. So IUI, it's a clinical treatment. It is globally the most popular fertility treatment. Mm. It's often the treatment that people try before they go to IVF just because it's a little less invasive. It's a little less expensive, but it's still not cheap. In the US, you're looking at three, four, five thousand $5,000 for a round of IUI. Really, what's so interesting about this sector of medicine is there's really nothing between trying at home and getting incredibly frustrated and going and spending $5,000 on an invasive medical procedure at home. It's nothing. There's this sort of desert of care where people have no choices. And that's really what we're trying to fill. So at Bayer, what we're trying to do is bring back an old clinical treatment that was called ICI, intracervical insemination. And ICI used to be sort of the de facto clinical treatment up until about the late 70s when IVF was invented. Now, ICI kind of fell off the menu of available clinical treatment options, as it were. And what we're doing is we're bringing it back. It's super simple. It involves placing semen into a cervical cap and placing that cap up against the cervix which is sort of the opening of the uterus, if you will. And by concentrating semen at the opening of the uterus, you increase the chance of sperm cells sort of making it into the uterus and reaching an egg. In all of the longitudinal data that we have on ICI, the peer-reviewed evidence shows that it compares in terms of efficacy to the efficacy of IUI. Mm. What we're trying to do is deliver this treatment straight to people's homes for a fifth to a tenth of the cost of IVF. So really what we're trying to do is create new steps in the treatment pathway that's affordable, inclusive, and not invasive. And that's mm. those are sort of the options. Sorry, Michael, that was a very long answer to the question of what are the fraternity treatment options? I took you on a journey there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's really good that you did that because it really compares, puts you in uh, into this landscape of existing solutions out there. Why was it kind of this go-to treatment and planned? Okay, IVF came up. IVF is still quite a, yeah, it's an expensive thing to do. So why is it that it declined in popularity? Yeah, so... There's some answers, some more cynical than others. But in terms of ICI sort of fading away, from the physician's perspective, a better option came up. You know, IVF is a lot more effective. They thought that IUI was a lot more effective. And these treatments, you know, when you're trying for a family, you, you really don't feel like you have a lot of time. So to go straight to a treatment that's a lot more effective, seemingly effective, feels like the right decision clinically. There's another answer to that, which is that a lot of fertility clinics today are private equity backed and owned. So fertility is a sort of funny sector of medicine. It's not cardiology. It's not oncology. It's not life or death medicine. Similar to dental, similar to dermatology. These are sectors of medicine in which the patients often are not, you know, life or death. These are not serious conditions. But nevertheless, the patient pain point is incredibly high. You now you ask a teenager how they feel about their acne, and they'll tell you that 
they'll die at school if they have horrible acne, you know? It's the patient pain point really high. But because it's not life or death medicine, what this means is the clinician interest, the physician interest, and, and the interest of a publicly funded healthcare system remains relatively low. And so the provision of care often doesn't really keep up. Or what happens is these sectors of medicine become increasingly privatized. When they become privatized, you start to see the incentives aligning against maximizing revenue, against sort of aligning the incentive of the healthcare sector to the incentive of the investor, which isn't always necessarily where in the best interest of the patient. And we've sort of seen a shift happening in fertility towards offering more expensive, more invasive IVF because the clinic makes more money on that. Mm. So is this kind of the opportunity you're leveraging that just a lot of other players aren't really looking at this because it may not be as profitable and you're kind of the disruptor and the classical disruption model where, you know, maybe they just basically dismissing it because it's better to basically go IVF from a business perspective. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So tell us more about how you're actually building that out. What's your strategy to actually bring bringing this to market and cutting through the noise and getting people to get back to this treatment. So, Yeah. So what we're trying to do is build a full treatment kit. We're not just going to ship you a, an artificial insemination device. We're trying to create a treatment experience that is similar to what you get were you to be in the clinic. So every cycle, every roughly every month, but sort of broadly mapped to a menstrual cycle, you receive a complete treatment kit and it's got two insemination devices in it. The insemination devices can be thought of as applicators. The mm. applicators contain the cervical cap that you pour semen into and place on the cervix. So the kit contains two insemination devices and two semen collection containers. The reason the semen collection containers feel important to mention, they're by no means the most glamorous part of this treatment kit, but What they are is they sort of represent inclusivity for us in a really unique way. A lot of the home treatment solutions, there are some things that exist that, that sort of serve the home market today. Most of them, 90% of them, I would say, require heterosexual intercourse to be used. So the semen is deposited either into a cap using a condom, so you have intercourse to collect it, or directly into the vaginal canal through intercourse, and then something's inserted after that. What that means is people for whom intercourse is not a part of their family building story. And, you know, the most obvious are same-sex female couples, maybe single women who are using a known donor, but there are whole other groups of people, physical ability, sexual trauma survivors. There are many, many people for whom sex is not it. And all of the solutions exist today assume that really is how we start our family. And it's time to totally reinvent that story. We really need to update that and change how we think about creating families and, and sort of doing them a more modern way. And so all of that is to say the semen collection container is in the kit because you collect that semen sample, much the way you would in the clinic, into a container, and then it's poured into the applicator. So anyone for whom sex is not a part of their story, cool, we're here for you. We're sort of all about access to not only affordable care, but also inclusive care. The rest of the kit has ovulation tests, pregnancy tests um, to sort of lead you through that full cycle. And then we're also launching a digital support product that guides you through much the way sort of you have your hand held in the clinical environment. 
So we're working on building those things out and looking to uh, launch in the UK in July next year. Amazing. And your UK-based company, right? We are. Amazing. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about, you know, some of the challenges of actually launching a product like this and then into more of a kind of broader entrepreneurial challenges. So what have you seen so far on your journey? What's kind of your biggest barrier, biggest challenge to sort out to actually get this to market? What's been kind of on top of mind for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we've navigated a few. I think from a business perspective, building regulated medical hardware, there's so much complexity there. That is not an easy thing to do. And it takes time and it takes money. And if you look at the data from the FDA, on average, to get a 510k R classification of device from concept through to commercialization, takes about two and a half years and $5 million on average. So it's a long journey. The $5 million part is pretty important because it means you have to go and raise that. And I think one of the biggest barriers we faced, candidly, is access to capital. Mm. Your fundraising is such a difficult thing to do, especially in this environment. And it really just takes your focus off the business. So when you're an early stage team and it's just you, as it was for us in the early days, you know, my co-founder still had a, a full-time job. When I was raising, the business wasn't moving forward because you're really just focused on raising. And honestly, it's really hard. I remember when I was raising my first funding round, you used to see these headlines in Sifted of like, this startup raises a million and this startup raises 10 million and this startup, you know. And if you read Sifted, you'd walk away and think, huh, raising's really easy. And actually, it's totally the opposite, you know? It really is the opposite. And when I opened my first funding round, I had no idea what I was doing. I read Venture Deals by Brad Feld. And then I sat down and I Googled how to raise money in London. And that was it. That was how I started. And eight months on and 284 conversations later, I finally had raised my pre-seed round. And it was probably the longest eight months of my life. <laughs> it was just constant rejection. And I compared my journey to the articles in Sifted and I thought, is it me? Am I doing this wrong? Like, what's going on here? And actually, we don't talk about it enough, but access to capital and fundraising is probably one of the most significant challenges that early stage founders face, especially if you're building something that maybe doesn't exist. Or that investors can't easily draw comparisons to other things. You know, we're building consumer-facing medical devices. All of the medtech funds are like, whoa, consumer-facing. And all of the consumer funds are like, oh, hardware. Between the two of them, we didn't fit a single fund thesis. And so I think really when we talk about challenges, certainly that's been one of them. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unwind and to dive deeper <laughs> into. Obviously, with Impact Hustlers, we have our Impact Hustlers community for founders, so we support founders. And yeah, a lot of the, that's kind of the common thread, you yeah. know, funding, access to funding, especially because, you know, everybody's talking about lean and, you know, obviously you want to have some traction before you raise investment and things like that. And there's just certain sectors like in your case, you just can't keep start selling without anything else and then raise investment later. So I, I guess like the kind of framework for most investors has been, you know, either you have traction or you have a founding team that has like built an amazingly successful company before, then you'll probably have it relatively easy to fundraise. Now, yes. 
how did you actually succeed in the end? Was it just a pure persistence or is there anything that you did figure out along this painful journey? Honestly, grit and persistence. I think I said it a little earlier, but it took me 284 conversations to raise 500k. And what was so interesting about that is our pre-seed round was 500k. It was just a slew of rejection. It was really one of the longest periods of life. And right at the time that we closed the funding round, we won an Innovate UK grant for 300k. And I remember this so clearly. Sifted broke our funding announcement. They got the exclusive on it. And suddenly there was this big headline one morning in April that said, Bay of Fertility raises a million dollars. It's like, where did that come from? And so they'd taken the 500k pre-seed and the Innovate UK grant, converted it to dollars at whatever conversion rate they chose. And we were one of those million dollar headlines. And I remember feeling so conflicted reading this because I thought... I'm one of those headlines now. And this was not what that race was like. But, I mean, look, we have to take the wins and celebrate. You know, we'd race around and that was great. But it, it really did make me laugh. That's so interesting. Startup journalism, I think, is... I mean, I love Sifted in many ways, but startup journalism is broken in so many ways. I think the kind of tech crunch type reporting is all good and fine. And all I understand why they're doing it. But it's just so much more to it. And I think for founders, it creates really this fake environment of everybody's just raising these crazy amounts and why yeah. am I not? So, yeah. And yeah. the other thing I'm sure you face some, well, I assume, is this thing that we quite briefly spoke about is like, oh, is this kind of a niche thing where obviously investors are predominantly male? For some reason, there's still plenty of investors out there that think that serving female customers is some sort of niche minority group. That's not half of the population. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the way, this is not just female customers. This is actually more complex than that, right? As you said. So tell us about your stories that you experienced when fundraising in terms of the space being biased against female founders, against products that are perceived <laughs> as, oh, this is only for this niche. Tell us about that. I had a lot of very funny stories. I used to keep notes and catalog all of them because I thought one day I'm going to look back on this and laugh. I think there were a few things that were up against us. It was an interesting time to raise generally because we were sort of on the cusp of the second lockdown. There was a lot of uncertainty around the direction that COVID was going to go. I opened my funding round in July. Don't ever open a funding round in July. Everyone goes away on vacation. August. <laughs> But I think what was really interesting is I'm a non-technical female founder creating a very technical business. There was a lot that was implied around that. You know, I remember pitching a syndicate and I think, I don't think this was by design, but the syndicate happened to be all male. And I remember the head of the syndicate put time in my calendar after my pitch, my sort of practice pitch. I was like, oh, great, maybe they're interested. And he spent 25 minutes teaching me how to animate my slide so that investors could absorb the information a little easier. And I just remember sitting through this and thinking, I'm not sure this is the best use of my time. <laughs> it was just one of those examples all the time. This is for women. And it's like, well, actually, the technology is, addresses the sperm problem more than it does female fertility. So kind of for men, if men could just admit to themselves that they have a sperm problem, you know, there's your audience. But I, I, there were a lot of moments in that first funding round where people, you know, they really doubt or, 
yeah, it pure persistence gets you through, but certainly there were some sort of unique challenges on top of just raising capital being the sort of main mm -hmm. one. Do you have any advice for female founders navigating that environment that you found useful? Any advice? I think so deeply about this all the time and I think about how we can fix this. It's such a difficult thing because, you know, if you look at the stats on VC, it's still pretty horrifying. I think it's 2% of all VC capital or maybe even lower now goes to female founded and led teams. That is the reality of the environment in which you're operating. And you're not going to be able to change it yourself in the time frame in which you need to raise that round. So I think one of the things that's so hard about it is it's not like a problem that we can just solve and then go and, and build our companies. You know, it's a reality that we face and we need to accept it, hate it, and just know that it makes you, certainly with me, You know, you're a more resilient founder. You're a stronger founder. You, the bar is higher. And so your work is better. Ultimately, you'll come out on top. Got it. Now, if we move away from fundraising and looking at building the company more broadly, what's coming to mind when I ask you about kind of the biggest challenges you had to overcome outside of fundraising or learnings, just things that stuck with you or like, oh, I didn't expect that. Anything that comes to mind there? So many lessons. I think what someone once said startups are like babies. They're so incredibly fragile and also so incredibly resilient. You know, they can survive a lot. I reflected on that. I thought, God, you know what? That's so true. You know, we survived at the same time that we were raising a second round. You know, one of the key moments in the life of Bayo was when we decided that we'd injection molded our first run of prototype devices. So we'd, we'd taken the manufacturing process quite far, had cut tooling, it cut steel, created tools, sort of thought that we were almost on the, on the cusp of the final stages of getting to market. And then we ran a trial and we were live streaming this usability study, watching people sort of use and handle the device using a medical model. I remember it so clearly. I wasn't watching this because I was on a call. And my co-founder called me and he never calls me on my phone. So it's like, oh, something's going on. One of the devices broke. Now we're medically regulated. So when a device breaks in a study, you have to show that we've dealt with it. And it was just this pivotal moment where I sat back and I thought, huh, we can push forward on the path we're on and prioritize getting to market and know that the device might maybe just not be perfect. Or we can pull the plug, go back to the beginning, push our launch date by a year and build this thing right and run the risk of getting to our next funding round with nothing and knowing how hard that's going to make it to raise, not being on the market. We picked the latter. It was more important to us to build it right than to get it to market. I suppose the lesson I took away from that and the piece of advice that I, I always share, and this actually was imparted to me by a very dear friend and an advisor in New York, and what he said was, make a decision. And the, the story I tell, I sort of have a, a favorite bakery in New York. It's called Lady M. And we're walking around New York and my advisor says, you know, left or right. And if you know New York City, when you're down, downtown, it's not the grid system. The streets are kind of all, all over the place. So he's like, left or right. I was like, I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know the way to the bakery. You do. And he's like, no, no, left or right. I'm like, oh, left. And then we get to the next junction, left or right. It's like, I don't know. Like, you know where this place is. I don't. It's like left or right, like right. And eventually we get to a point where I realize, and he articulated it so beautifully, it's not 
a question of turning left and getting to cake, turning right and walking into a burning building and dying. It's never cake or death, you know? It is always just a decision. And what's so important about that is if you're not making a decision, you're not moving forward. You're not course correcting and you're not learning. And early on in my journey as a founder, these decisions felt so big that I was paralyzed by them and I wouldn't make them. You know, I'd sit on them for three, six, seven months worrying, trying to map out the options, trying to figure it out. But fundamentally, by not making the decision, I was costing myself time and I wasn't moving forward. In the case where the device broke, we could have pushed and gone to market with a crap device. It, you know, we chose not to. I look back on that and I still really believe that there was no right or wrong decision in that moment. There was just a decision. You know, whether we fix the device now or we fix, we pull it off the market and fix it later, that opens up your next decision, you know. And if you take three lefts to get to your right, imagine all the stuff that you learn along the way. I think for me, that was really the most powerful piece of advice. Your job as a founder is to make decisions quickly. Wow, this is so important to share. Thank you so much. <laughs> I can course. relate to it personally. I can relate with other founders. I think the speed at which you make decisions, at which you make mistakes and adjust is really the biggest differentiator for success yeah. because you can actually not plan out the whole journey in advance and totally. foresee everything. <laughs> so that's the only thing you have. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when you look at a decision as an opportunity to course correct, suddenly it's not so scary anymore. There's no right or wrong. Now, you're in a regulated space, and that's why I'm keen to understand a bit more on your thinking on that, right? Again, we, we don't need to talk about lean startup and moving fast and breaking things and all these kind of concepts that are out there for founders to, you know, launch quickly, launch early, get it out there, get people to use it. Doesn't matter if it's not perfect. If you screw up, you try again. Obviously, in a regulated space, you have all kinds of issues if you do that. And anything ranging from, yeah, you know, basically just posing a risk to people using it up to, you know, some high profile intentional fraud cases that happened that, you know, I don't want to put you close to at all. But, uh, you know, like you need to have a framework to think about these things and be like, okay, I want to move fast. I want to learn fast. I have to, because if I don't, I want to make mistakes. Yeah. Well, I don't want to make mistakes, but I want to increase my rate of learning while I have to navigate this regulated environment. How do you think about that? Yes, it certainly adds a level of complexity. You know, move fast and break things does not apply in our world. In the medical space, there absolutely is the need to build products that are safe. I think this is where I learned another lesson is there is safe and effective, and then there's perfect. Mm. And as a founder, you chase perfect, but really the bar is actually set at a slightly different place. The bar sits at, hey, is it safe? Can people use this thing safely? And will it work? You don't want to launch something that isn't going to help the patient, that isn't going to be additive to the patient journey. And as long as you can tick those two boxes, perfect is another thing entirely. So in a, in a medically regulated space, we do have the added complexity of needing to adhere to medical regulation. ton of hoops to jump through. You know, it, you know biocompatibility testing, transport testing, you name it. We're going to have to go through it. It's just the reality of the sector that we're in. 
you do what needs to be done to build a safe and effective device and mm. everything else be as lean as possible on. Amazing. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And then how do you close the kind of feedback loop with your customers and kind of developing further from your perspective? How do you do that? Yeah, good question. So actually, like we're regulated, which means we have to collect post-market surveillance data and conduct post-market clinical follow-ups. So we will have to speak to people. We will have to sort of understand the journey and collect the data on how it was for them using the device. In terms of closing the feedback loop, we actually have a very interesting way to do that in that it's a subscription product. You try three, four, five, six, six cycles of treatment. That's really where you get the highest efficacy. So from a feedback perspective, we have an opportunity to touch base with our users every month. How are you doing? How did that go? Can we help? And what we find is that this is a journey that people really need support on. You know, I think when you're trying for a baby and it's not working, we often find that people just need to be told that they're okay. You know, they're doing the right thing and they're okay. And sometimes it just takes time. And so we have wonderful opportunities to touch base with our users and our families. And really, once we get this thing to market, what will be most interesting about it is those who conceive and those who don't. And you said it earlier in the intro, like the, the efficacy rate across six cycles of treatment for our device is 50%. It's such an interesting thing as a founder to launch a product where you know, statistically, half of your users will not succeed with that product. You know, that feels hard. That feels, mm. in many ways, that doesn't feel right. you know. But then you look at the efficacy rates of fertility clinics and treatments globally. For IVF, it sits anywhere between 25 and 35% for one cycle. Mm. So... You know, we're doing a good thing, but what that means is that, you know, almost half or half of our users, their journey's not over. It doesn't end with us. We're going to need to support them onto the next phase of their journey. And that is also a really wonderful opportunity to get feedback and, and to sort of close that feedback loop a little bit as we support them into what's next. Really important and showing that you're there to take them on that journey as well as managing expectations, right? You don't want to create yourself an environment where you, half your customers are disappointed with you because you didn't get them the results, but that's just the way the method works. Exactly. You know, it's not make up a perfume. We can't make any promises here. (laughs) And we've got to be very careful not to. Yeah, got it. Let's talk a bit about the future before we wrap up. If you look ahead now, you know, where are you at right now and what's kind of coming up in the next couple of years? What kind of hoops do you still need to jump through to make this widely available and how do you see the company growing? Lots of questions there, but just the future. future. (laughs) Just the future. (laughs) Many hoops to jump through. So I said earlier, we're launching in the UK in July. So we have to do a whole market launch. The product is largely finished and designed. So now we need to sort of spin up a production environment, get that tested. It's called sort of verification validation. So all of that's going on in the background with the hardware. On the market launch side of things, we're looking at, you know, who is this best for? How do we find them? How do we make sure that the people using this have a good chance of success? And so we've got a lot of hoops to jump through there. In terms of the future, some of the bigger pieces that we're looking at is the US market launch. So the UK is one thing, but the US really is where there's such an enormous need for care. You know, there's 16, 18 million women in the US who live in an area with no fertility clinic. They're called fertility deserts. 
And so what we're trying to do really is get as quickly as we can into the U.S. market to sort of help improve access to affordable care in the U.S. So that'll be a big hoop, for, especially from a regulatory perspective. The FDA has all of its own things that we need to do. More broadly, I think there's an opportunity to improve the entire family building journey, you know, and reinvent it a little bit. If you ask me what the future looks like for Bayer, I would say that I would love for Bayer to be the company that is there for every family. It doesn't matter what family means to you. It could be, you know, me, Susan, and four cats. It could be Jim, John, and a surrogate and a donor. It could be whoever's in your family. Yeah, maybe it is mom and dad and 2.5 children. It doesn't matter to us. You know, whatever your family looks like, whoever's in the team, we're here for you to support you with the things that you need to go from wanting a family to having the family that you always wanted. And boy, if we can create a journey that is a little less painful, a little less stressful, a little less heartbreaking, we'll have made it. That'd be great. Love it. My last <laughs> questions are very connected to what you just answered, but just want to move us to the time 10 years from now. If we think about 10 years from now, year 2032 or three almost by the time we release this, is how does the world look like if Bayer Fertility succeeds? You hinted <laughs> at it already. All I can think about right now is that I'll be 41 in 10 years and I'm thinking, what will I look like? What will the world look like for Bear? <laughs> I think I sort of hinted at it. If we can be the company that everyone turns to the moment they decide they want to start a family, you know, knowing that they may not need us, you know, but we're here if they do. And what does that look like? I think I see a world where everyone can get the advice, the information, that they need, the education that they need. People can get the treatment, the diagnostic, they can access their care. And suddenly building a family goes from something that's deeply frustrating to something that you have the support you need. And if in 10 years we are in a position to offer that for every family, cool. Amazing. Wishing you all the best on that journey. I know there will be <laughs> many challenges ahead, but I hope they're going to be resolved quickly. The rate of learning is going to be high and there's not going to be major roadblocks for you to get to that level. So all the best for you. Thanks, guys. Luca. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impact hustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.